where are you going to go? Where will you turn? When everything that you've put your faith in fails. Hmm? You know, that's going to happen to you one day. It's going to happen to every one of us. Sooner or later. (laughs) Sooner or later, life gets to a point for us that no matter what it is we've put our faith in or our hope in, on this earth, it's just not enough. It's not eternal. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a lady, a woman, who's put her hope in a lot of things. But she doesn't know Christ. She doesn't know the God of the Bible. She has some beliefs about him, but they're all messed up. And he gives her direction. Because the day is coming, I promise, just like it did for her and just like it will for you and for me. I'm not, man, you know me, I'm a positive kind of guy and I love to live life. But, you know, before I walked up here this morning, someone told me about a dear friend, a real dear friend, one of my worship leaders for years. Father died. That guy was as fit as, I mean, thought he was. Obviously he wasn't. But, uh... Felt some chest pain going to the doctor. He was driving, driving himself and his wife in the car. Had a heart attack. Gone. Where are you going to go when everything you've put your faith in and trust in, whatever you want to call it in this life, fails and it's not enough? We all have to stand before a creator. It's a whole lot better if we know him and face him as a friend rather than as an unknown and perhaps an enemy. Open your Bibles up to John chapter 4, if you would. In just a moment, we're going to read the story in John chapter 4. It's a little bit lengthy, but you'll understand it a lot better if I give you some background to it, just for a minute. Usually, I just read the text, but I'm not sure, and quite in fact, sure you... you, Well, I just know it'll be better if I give you a little background on it, Okay. (laughs) When we start reading, we're going to start in verse 1 of uh, John chapter 4, but we're going to get down to about the fourth verse. And when, if you've got your Bible, you can look there and you'll see an interesting statement. It wouldn't be that interesting to us if we didn't know a little Jewish culture and history, and that's why I'm going to give you just a moment or two of it. John is writing this, and John was an eyewitness, and John's writing this some years later. But I think it's interesting, he's talking about Jesus is going to go from one place to another place, from Judea up into the Galilean region. One, Judea was in the south, Galilee was in the northern part of Israel. But he says in verse 4, now Jesus needed to go through Samaria. And I read that and I think, what's the big deal with that? That's like saying if you want to go to King's Mountain, you had, from here you had to go through Gastonia. I mean, that's just a... Straight shot, right? You'd be crazy to go, you know, well, you, you know, to go to Kings Mountain, you had to go through Columbia. <laughs> That's kind of what we're dealing with here. John doesn't say he wanted to, but John says he needed to. He, it literally could be translated, he had to go through Samaria. 
And uh, you have to understand what that would have meant to a Jewish person in Jesus' day because here's what it is. It's all in the same country, and you might say it's three states, Judea, Samaria, and then Galilee. South, middle, north. Here's the deal. The Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along at all. In fact, they hated one another. And their animosity started about 500 years prior to this event that we're going to read about in John chapter 4. Real historical event. The nation of Israel about 500 years before this had been taken captive by the Assyrians, run over, just decimated by them. And one of the things that the Assyrians would do is they would take a lot of the political leader and the rich folks and the power folks and the leaders and uh, people with authority, they'd take them out of that nation when they conquered that nation, put them in other nations. That left the people disoriented without, uh, you know, any leadership and guidance. But a few, they would always leave there. Common laborers, typically the poor people, so that they would have somebody. They conquered this nation. We want to get the fruits of it. We want to have the land. We want to have the work, the crops, this type of thing. In addition, what they would do is not only remove the leaders from a nation like they did in Samaria, in that part of Israel, uh, which Samaria is kind of like a state. You might say they took over a state in Israel. But what they would do is they would not only remove the leaders from there, they would bring in people from other nations. For example, if you were to go back into the Old Testament, you could read about the actual event when it occurred. In the book of 2 Kings is an explanation of it. Don't turn there. I'll just read it to you. 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 25 tells us this. It's talking about this time 500 years before. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, from Cuthah, from Ava, from Hamath, from uh, Separvim, and he settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the Israelites they had removed. They took over Samaria and lived in its cities, and when they first came to live there, they did not worship the Lord. So they would do it for two reasons. First of all, they'd take a lot of the leaders out and they'd bring other leaders in and they would typically make them intermarry and have children. What they tried to do was to break a sense of national identity so that in that nation now, which they had overran, there was no real them and us thing, right? Because a lot of them were there. And so it, it, it caused that and uh, it robbed the people of their good leadership. And the Israelites, though, who were left in the land. Now, back to the history lesson. They, the Israelites who were left, not deported, but the ones who remained in the land, they did something that were against the commandments. They did intermarry with the other nations and religions. Let me just say this. And let me put a parenthesis right here. This was not commanded by God. God had told them not to mix with other nations. It had nothing to do with race it had nothing to do with that that sort of thing in God's eyes what it was he had just formed Israel as a nation from Abraham and Sarah and God was teaching them the true way to worship him and to have a relationship with him and the rest of these nations around them were idolatrous they were wrapped up in all types of syncretistic uh, spiritualistic type idolatry and God didn't want them polluting as it were the religious stream now what happened was but but they did they married and they started worshiping false gods and all this kind of stuff and about 70 years after all that happened 
God saw to it that the Israelites who had been taken out of Samaria began to return to Israel to rebuild the nation because God was eventually going to bring Jesus Christ through the nation of Israel. You got it? This was God's plan. And so what happened was, at first, when they came back, happened during the day of Ezra, if you know your Bibles, and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, those two guys. And uh, what they were going to do, decided first we're going to rebuild the temple. We've got to have a place to worship because this is how God has told us how to worship. And Ezra led the charge on that. And then after they rebuilt the temple, when they came back, the people who had left when they came back, uh, Nehemiah led in the rebuilding of the wall. And so when they returned to build, rebuild the temple, the people who had stayed there and intermarried wanted to help. And they wanted to rebuild the temple. It wasn't with the wives or the husbands they had taken that they had a problem. It's that they had adopted their false worship. So Ezra looked at them and said, no. This is a temple for the God of Israel. It's not for the false gods of this world. Nehemiah looked at them and they wanted to help Nehemiah. And you can read about it in early chapters of Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah said no. In fact, though, they were a little harsh. They really treated them as enemies. Why? Because they had broken the commands of God and because they had become very idolatrous. They had mixed Judaism, the true religion of the Bible, with Babylonian and Assyrian false gods. All kind of weird, wicked, violent stuff. And they had rejected most of the Old Testament. For instance, they said, well, we like the first five books of the Bible. We don't like the rest of it. So they just kind of picked out the parts that they liked. And the religion of the Samaritans is kind of a pick and choose thing. I like that. I'll keep that. I like that part about heaven. I could care less about that part about hell. Let's keep that part. Let's throw this out. And so they had all kinds of messed up teachings in their religion. Now, Here's another thing they did during the time of being occupied in Samaria. They didn't have a temple. It was destroyed. And so what they did was they didn't have any priests because all of those were taken out of the country. And what they did was the people of Samaria asked the Assyrians to send them a priest. That's what they did. They sent to the governor of Assyria. They said, would you send us a priest? Not a priest of God's line. Not a priest of God's choosing. They had a false priesthood. They had false worship because their worship and idea and truths about God were messed up. And so Nehemiah and Ezra said, no, you're not going to help because we're not bringing that stuff into the temple. So here's what they did. They must have had some Baptist in their uh, blood because they said, okay, you're not going to let us help rebuild the temple. We'll build our own temple. Yeah, there you go. Start a new church across the street because <laughs> you guys are messed up. We got it right. And so what they did, really, literally, they went up to a place called Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim was a special place. It was a holy place. God had commanded the children of Israel, long before any of this happened, to go there once a year and read all the blessings of the law of God. And uh, the Samaritans went, and they said, we're going to build a temple there. Not in Jerusalem. No, it was a false temple. And that's where the people of Samaria worshiped God. And they were doing it right on up from that time, right on up until the time of Jesus. And even today, there's a place there. If you go there, they'll tell you right now, this is exactly where you're supposed to worship God. In fact, it's the only place on earth you can worship God. And we're the only people. They're very zealous, very passionate. We're the only people that have the truth. Anytime anybody tells you that, you better be really, really, really 
really, really, really careful. Now, I'm serious as I can be when you walk in and a pastor or a teacher, religious leader, a friend says, we've got the truth about God and we're the only people that have the truth about God. You just need to be careful. Ding, red flag goes up, right? I mean, just be careful. But that's who they were. Incredibly passionate, worshiping God in their own way, in their own time, their own God as they saw him. Syncretistic, taking all of these old mystery religions and mixing them together. Jews weren't going for that because, buddy, they were monotheistic and that was it. And so here you have the Jews and the Samaritans living in the same land in the time of Jesus with this incredible cultural religious hatred of one another. The Jews hated the Samaritans for several reasons. First of all, I think maybe perhaps it, it, it reminded them every time they saw a Samaritan, they were viewed as kind of a half-breed and, and it was a reminder we got conquered. Another reason they felt like those Samaritans had broken the law by intermarrying. And they'd built a false temple. The Samaritans, on the other hand, hated the Jews. It wasn't a one-way deal. The Samaritans hated the Jews because they felt like uh, you guys didn't understand what we went through. We were the poorest of the poor. We were left here with no leaders. We didn't have a temple. It was destroyed. We did the best we could. And when you finally got back here, you didn't even let us help build the real temple. All that's going on, and man, it is a hotbed of hatred in the time of Jesus just like it is today if you go to Palestine. Yet John takes time in verse 4 to tell us Jesus needed to go through this area <laughs> where these who was a Jew, by the way, Jesus, where these idolatrous, half-breed, mongrel race, as they would have been called, sad to say. Jesus needed to go through there. It's worth noting, because if you'll look with me, I'll show you this, and I kind of explained it, but on a sensible map. Now, everybody walked in those days. Even most Roman soldiers walked. We always have these cute little ideas about people riding in carts. Not most of them just walked. There was no modern transportation. They just walked everywhere they went, so it just took days. So if you look, here's Israel, Mediterranean Sea over here, and then you got Judea right here, right? That's like a state. There's Jerusalem. That's where the real temple is, was and still remains over there today. This is the, the, the Sea of Galilee up here, obviously near the region or state, if you will. It's a region, but like the state of Galilee. Right smack between them is this area of Samaria. In fact, there's the city Sychar where Jesus is going to meet a woman. But to walk from here to here, about two days, that's it. But most Jews absolutely wouldn't do that. It would have made them, they were all into ritual. This would have made them unceremonial, uh, ceremonially unclean to walk through there and touch the dirt that these dirty Gentile people had been on. You say they aren't that bad. Uh, well, I, they weren't that bad. Sure they are. Sure they are. I've been to Israel many times. Just like there's white against black and black against white hatred here. There's Jew versus Gentile and Gentile versus Jew hatred there. I've been right there and watched people, Orthodox people, cross the street to keep from coming that they could possibly touch me or whatever as a Gentile. It's okay. We're, listen, truth is we're all unclean before a holy God. <laughs> we just all want to think we're better than somebody else. 
But about a two days walk. But you know what Jews would do that were in Jerusalem if they wanted to get up here? They would not go directly through Samaria. And you notice that long river. That's the Jordan River running right there. They'd go over to Jericho, cross there, go all the way up through Perea and all the way over through Decapolis, turning a two-day and going that way to avoid it, kind of making an end around, turning a two-day journey into about a four-and-a-half to a five-day journey. You know why? Because they hated Samaritans. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says the words, when John says he needed to go? Well, you look at that map, maybe he was in a hurry. Maybe he just was here and he needed to be there and get there in a hurry, so he cut straight, took the short way. Nope, Jesus was never in a hurry, never in a hurry, never in a hurry, never. It, was he forced to go that way? Nope, no problem over in, you know, Perea or Decapolis, no problem. Nobody forced him to do it. It was a choice. And he needed to be there because he had a divine appointment that God Almighty the Father had set up a long time ago to see a woman who didn't know anything about him become a worshiper and begin to show that the gospel was not only for one nation, Israel, but it was for everyone. Even idolatrous, immoral people like Samaritans. With that background, let's read the story quickly. I'll make a few comments and we'll be gone, okay? Get John chapter 4. I'm just going to try not to comment as we go along. <laughs> There's so much in this chapter, and I've studied it so much this week, too much, in fact. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees, those were the enemies, had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left, he, Jesus, left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Galilee was home for him. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, still there today. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's a key phrase. You should underline it. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Would you give me a drink? For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, Here you'll, you'll see the racism. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And then John, if your Bible doesn't have a parenthesis around the next sentence, it should. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. John said that, not the woman. John throws that in there. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, <laughs> she said, why are you a Jew asking me, a woman and a Samaritan at that, for a drink? Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and this well is deep. I mean, she's not dumb, right? Where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. 
but the water that I will give to him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, that I not come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and then come here. Now, he's testing her right there because look at the answer. The woman answered and she said, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, now he's never met her before, but he says to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. You spoke truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, the light's just getting flipped on for her. She doesn't know who he is really yet, but she's going, you know, ding, ding. This guy just been reading my mail or something, you know? I mean, he just told me things that nobody really should know. Certainly not him. So what do you do when somebody puts the religious screws to you, so to speak? You know what you do. She does exactly, she changes the subject. I perceive you're a prophet. He just says, you got five, you've been five husbands, you've been married five times, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. She says, look at verse 20. Um, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. <laughs> Let's talk about worship, right? You Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. She's like, let's bring up an old controversy. I want to know the answer to that. Jesus said to her, and this is a term of respect, and it would have been like ma'am. Woman, you believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. He says this, speaking of the Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. In other words, he was still truthful with her. He was not trying to insult her. He's just saying, you don't have the facts. You worship what you do not know. We, he's saying as Jews, know what we worship. So for salvation is of the Jews. He didn't mean that salvation was born in and of them, but God created the nation of Israel. God gave his word and the law and the commandments and the Gospels, the Messiah was Jewish. The salvation of God was coming through the Jews, through the Jewish nation. Salvation is of the Jews, he says. But the hour is coming and now is when the what? True worshipers. Now that's what we want to be. I don't want to be worshiping something false. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Did you know God is looking for people? Searching for people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Verse 24 is the key verse we want to focus in on. Jesus says these words. Think about it. God is spirit. That's His nature. He's, he's spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in what? truth the woman said to him I know that Messiah is coming who's called the Christ when he comes he will tell us all things and Jesus said to her one of the few times in scripture he does it I who am speaking to you I'm him he doesn't do that most times 
But he said, God is spirit, and they that would worship him and be a true worshiper must worship in spirit and in truth. There are a lot of things going on here, but with the background we talked, I want to look at the key issues, especially as they relate to worship. When Jesus says true worshipers must worship God in spirit and in truth. In other words, if you don't do that, you're not worshiping God. That's what he says. True worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. What does he mean? And, and what happens is she had tried to divert the conversation, to reroute it from her real problem and her real need with a question about where should we worship? On Mount Gerizim, they, our people say we ought to worship here, but you Jews say we ought to worship there. And Jew, Jesus, ref, that was the big question of the day that they were arguing about. And Jesus refused to be diverted. What he did, he looked at her with compassion he looked into her thirsty, empty soul of this bright and thoughtful woman. And when he did, he saw a much bigger need. So he talked to her not about places, Jerusalem, not about places, Mount Gerizim. He talked to her about a person, the Father. When Jesus says, in verse 23, the hour comes and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship Him. He was drawing her mind away from a place to a person. You see, very rarely in the Old Testament was, is God ever, ever, ever referred to as Father. You can't hardly find any. A few, but very few. But that was our Lord's characteristic name for Him. The Father in heaven, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. No wonder he did it, though. He was a son. Now, let me give you two truths about true worship that Jesus gives us. They're plain, but maybe not so clear. True worship has to be, Jesus says, what? In the Spirit and in truth. We're in this series about worship. True worship. Why would he say that? Here's, I've, I've studied it. Here's the main reason I think he said it. He was dealing with two Groups of people, a charged situation. Judaism, on one hand, the Jews were all, it was largely a worship about the letter rather than the spirit. They were all into keeping the rules, concerned with rites and rituals and forms and ceremonies and sacrifices and concerned with offerings and feast days and fast days and circumcision and Sabbaths and are you keeping it, are you not, can you do this, can you do that. It was all about form and function. I think to that crowd, Jesus would have said what he would say to many religious people today. You and I can get all of the rituals and the forms right and still be empty. Still not worship. Because true worship has to not only be about the truth, true worship has to be about the Spirit. But on the same hand, as he was addressing the Samaritan woman, and he was, he was telling her, real worship not only has to be about the truth, or excuse me, about spirit and passion, it has to be about truth. You've got to worship in spirit and in truth. As I told you, Samaritanism was basically a worship of the faults. They picked and choose, they cut out ideas they didn't like, they... they threw away half the Bible. They kind of made a hodgepodge of religious ideas. They, we like this, but, but we don't like that. Kind of like people say today, well, that, that maybe is your God, but that's, that's not how I view God. You know, 
may I lovingly and frankly say, it doesn't matter how we view God in the sense that it doesn't change Him. If I say I believe this pulpit's steel, doesn't change it from wood, does it? Doesn't change the facts. If I say I believe it's plastic, it does, it's wood. No matter what I believe in that sense, believing something doesn't necessarily make it real. Never forget Dr. Ravi Zacharias one time was teaching in a large psychiatry, cl- uh, excuse me, philosophy class at uh, UCLA, and he was a guest speaker, and he's a Christian speaker. And uh, he finally had taken some questions and answers, and he had pretty well defended his position. And finally, one philosophy student threw up his hands. He says, well, Dr. Zacharias, it doesn't matter anyway, really, because I don't even know that any of this is real. Like, how do I, would I know that any of this is even real? You know what Dr. Ra- uh, Zacharias' answer was? Would you mind if I took you out to the balcony to prove it? I joked and he laughed and he didn't offend the guy. But just believing that all this isn't real doesn't make it false. It doesn't make your view true. Jesus says, no, listen, lady, you have all the fervor in the world, the passion of the Samaritans. But you're not worshiping the true God. And what he did, he lifted her thoughts, not to a God who would condemn her, but he lifted her thoughts to a living, loving Father, one who yearned. I want you to see that. Jesus is saying to this woman, the Father seeks. He's going around seeking people just to love him. See, God doesn't want to beat you up. Man, God wants to love you. He's been seeking and searching, and he is seeking and searching. He is a God who is yearning for the worship, listen to me, of any Jew or Samaritan, of any who would worship him. But there are qualifications. You have to do it in spirit because God is spirit. That's what Jesus says. You've got to worship him in spirit with heart, with passion. Why? He's a passionate God. And you've got to worship him in spirit because he is a spirit. And you've got to worship him in truth because of what you are. And I am. What do you mean? We've got to worship God in spirit because of who he is. God is spirit. You must worship him in spirit. You've got to worship him in truth because of who you and I are. You've got to have truth. Can I lovingly say it? Because we're all idolaters. If I don't watch it, I'll worship my motorcycle. I'll worship my home. I'll worship a relationship. That's where this woman was. What do you think her greatest problem was? You meet this lady in this passage. Jesus has talked to her and he says, you got five husbands. You've had five and the guy you're living with now really is not your husband. What do you think her biggest problem was? Don't answer it. You think it was that she slept around a lot? Marital unfaithfulness? You think it was that? No, I'll tell you what it was. She was worshiping a false god. And what she was just trying to do was fill this God-shaped hole in her heart with men. Trying to find fulfillment in other things. That was her greatest problem. In doing so, she missed the real thing. What was her greatest need? 
Well, her greatest need. I mean, did she really just need a fresh start, maybe, with a new man? Probably not. Five strikes, you might be the problem. <laughs> I'm just saying. If you're there, I apologize. <laughs> you're welcome. Did she really just need a fresh start? No. You know what her greatest need was? It, it was salvation. She, her greatest need was she needed to know the Heavenly Father. And Jesus, what he was saying was to these two crowds, Jews and Samaritans, really, ultimately, I think when I study this passage, and I think this is what John is trying to communicate, Jesus would have been saying to the Jewish crowd, who had all the truth in the world, they had the truth, the Word of God, the Scriptures, salvation, the Messiah came through them. They had all the truth and all the rules and everything. But he was saying, you know, you people honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You need to think about that. We need to think about that. It's not enough to know the truth. You have to have some passion. I, you know, I think a, a great word to use for worship seriously is, because like, honestly, worship is hard to define biblically. But I think it's when all of us responds to all that he is with adoration. I love the word adoration when I'm adoring him. But that involves my emotions. And that involves truth because if I'm not responding to all that he is or I'm responding to something that he isn't, that's false. So I think it's key, Jesus would say to the Jews, if you worship the right God, you got all the facts, but your heart isn't in it, it's not worship. Now listen, I didn't say it was, Jesus didn't say it was poor worship, he said it's not worship. That's huge. And I think on the other hand, he was saying to the woman, who was a Samaritan, you got a lot of passion. I mean, their, their worship services and their religion, they are passionate, even fanatical. Saying you, you're passionate, but you don't have the truth. And if you worship with the greatest heart in the world, the greatest fervor in the world, and devotion in the world, but you're worshiping a false god, that's not truth, and that's not worship. Jesus really in this passage cuts to the real answer, and you know what he says? Here's what you need. You need to be saying to this lady individually, you need to have, you really need, your deepest need is the ability to genuinely and authentically worship in spirit with your heart and in truth the right God. At the end of the day, that is what every single person on the face of this earth needs. Houses. They aren't going to mean a lot when you're laying on your deathbed. Riches are fun. Boyfriends, girlfriends, relationships, they're great. They really are. They can enrich life, but I want to tell you something. They can ruin life. And even if they thoroughly enrich your life, they never last for eternity. What are you going to do is where I started. When everything you've built your life 
on, you find out that it, it really means nothing. Hmm? What are you going to do? Lovingly and as a friend and a pastor, I just want to encourage you. I really want to encourage you to listen to Jesus. Because what he's saying is that there is a loving Heavenly Father who's been seeking you. And his arms are open not only to rule keepers, but to confused people who have been serving idols. I tell you, if you turn to him with your heart open and you mean it and you turn to the right God, the right God will answer you. The only God will answer you and he will meet every need you ever had. Let's pray. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I always say that just so that we can kind of focus. It helps me to keep, sometimes even when I'm worshiping, keep my attention on the Lord. The real question for us today as we wrap up and close, where do you fall into this story? There are a lot of us who would fall into the category that Jesus addressed of people who knew the rules, who knew the Bible, who knew they had all the facts, but maybe honestly, they just had lost the passion in worship. Have, has your worship been there? Christians, that's the side we have to be extremely careful that we don't get caught up in. Dressing a certain way, acting a certain way. And yet we really haven't come in here and adored him. We're too busy focusing on the preacher or the announcements or the... Listen, we're the worst at this staff. We have to focus on it. We feel like it has to come off right. No, what has to happen is that we and you have to adore him. To you, I would say, get your focus back on your father who can passionately deliver you from dead orthodoxy. Perhaps you're in the other camp, the other group. Perhaps you've been passionate about some stuff. It might be cars, it might be boats, it might be a thousand things, but it's not the true God. And that can be just as condemning. I would encourage you to come to Jesus. Fascinating thing when she says, I know that when Messiah comes, he's going to tell us all these things that we don't know. And Jesus looks at her and says, I who speak to you am him. You owe it to yourself in this life to check out authentically and openly the claims of Jesus Christ.
And I pray, Father, that you would help us and Holy Spirit, you would help us to understand these things and that if we determine that we have fallen short in any category, that you would bring us into the truth about you and who the true God is and you would bring us into the, a loving relationship, a passionate life of adoring you so that our worship can actually be worship. And we wind up at the end meeting you as a friend rather than a foe. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me for just a few moments? We're going to sing one song. If your response to the message is, yeah, my worship has been cold and lifeless, then you spend this time adoring him. Use the words on the screen, the music, don't... Let them lift your thoughts to Him. Let them help you adore Him. All the instruments, my words, the words on the screen, all that is to lift your gaze toward Him, your Father who loves you. Let Him be the object of your attention. If, on the other hand, you say, man, I've found out that I've been, boy, this has really spoken to me, and I've been living for the wrong thing, worshiping the wrong thing. I'm going to be down front, man. I'll be here to pray with you. If you want to have a relationship with Jesus, you can have it. You can have it today before you leave here, and I invite you. Ryan will be here. I'll be here. Tony will be here. We'd have no greater pleasure than to pray with you. And we can come and pray with us, go right back to your seat, but you can leave changed. You can leave forgiven, and you can leave in a relationship today with your Heavenly Father that will let you worship Him in an acceptable way. You really can. You really can. And that's why I'm going to come and I'll meet you at the front when you come. Let's worship.